Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, thank you to everyone who's involved with the CSP and just everyone who has been so, um, all the people have been so welcoming to me as I have arrived here in California uh, just this past, uh, past Thursday. And um, clearly Orange County is a very, very friendly place. So thank you for that. Um, what I want to speak about today is the development of Jewish mysticism as a form of Jewish discourse in the Middle Ages and how that functioned in that time and place, why it was important in that particular context, and compare it to a kind of Jewish mysticism that we see today. Uh, I think I, I said it's from the Middle Ages to Madonna. So looking at the Kabbalah Center today, um, which in fact is interesting being here in Los Angeles where one of their um, oldest and most important branches uh, was established. And by thinking through this comparison, I want us to consider what the similarities and differences between these two things tell us about the function of Jewish mysticism or of Jewish secret discourse, both in Jewish communities and in non-Jewish communities, both in the pre-modern world and in our contemporary context. And by looking at those comparisons, I think it's instructive to help us notice things otherwise we might miss. What I want to avoid is, um, is a judgment of either the pre-modern or the contemporary forms of Kabbalah. There's actually been a fair amount of controversy about the Kabbalah center. Uh, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Sort of the perennial question, right? Is this good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? And I think that's a fair question, but one that I want to um, just set aside for a little while so that we can first understand what are these things, in what ways are they similar, and in what ways are they different, and how does that comparison help reveal things to us that otherwise we really might not see? So first, what is, um, what is Kabbalah? How many people here were at the opening talk where I gave some introductory remarks about Kabbalah? So there's only about four of you. So I'll be reprising a little bit some of that basic description of what Kabbalah is um, and where it comes from. But as we describe Kabbalah in its pre-modern, especially medieval form, I want us to think about a couple of questions. First, what can we learn about the history that Jews experienced by studying Kabbalah, by looking at Kabbalistic literature? And while people often think of Kabbalah as very secretive, something that only a few Jews were aware of, um, what I want to present is I think there's tremendous evidence that would suggest that many, many Jews thought about and talked about their Jewishness in terms of Kabbalah, even in the Middle Ages, even within 50 and 100 years of the beginning of Kabbalah. Um, the manuscript evidence in the libraries around the world would suggest that Jews were writing about Kabbalah, they were thinking about Kabbalah in many different ways, and that this was a very public, a very popular, and a very meaningful discourse for many pre-modern Jewish people. So I want to think about what this was doing for them and what we can learn about Jewish experience by studying Kabbalah as an example of how Jews thought about themselves. The other question is, why are Jewish secrets so valued? Obviously, Jews value the claim that they have a secret tradition, but non-Jews do as well. And I want to think about what that might mean. And then 
third, I want us to sort of just bear in mind that any time a new form of religious discourse, a new kind of thinking about and talking about one's own religious self, anytime a new form of that emerges, it tells us something very important about the culture where that happens. That, that tells us something about what we often call cultural logic. The cultural logic wherein that way of thinking and that way of speaking about oneself makes sense and is meaningful and is powerful. And so Kabbalah is an example of this meaningful, powerful form of Jewish ideas and Jewish discourse that was meaningful in a particular culture. And when we think of those things together, Kabbalah tells us a lot about Jewish experience. So now first, what is Kabbalah? Um, Kabbalistic doctrine is often presented as a secret, as a mystery. And it is claimed by Kabbalists to be a mystery revealed by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, which was then passed on from teacher to disciple secretly among the Jewish people up until whatever day is the present day of whoever is writing, whether that be the year 1300 or the year 2000, that this is a secret discourse. And what it really means when they say that it's secret is that it's something that can't be derived using reason or logic. Instead, it's something that has to be revealed by God. And so this notion of a mysterious revelation is the origin of Kabbalah. This is really part of what that word Kabbalah means. Kabbalah comes from the Hebrew word lekabel, to receive. So it is received knowledge rather than scientific or derived knowledge. So this secret knowledge that is claimed to be revealed on Mount Sinai, they say that this was in addition to the Torah, the written Torah, and the oral Torah. So the, the written Torah, the five books of Moses, and then the rabbis of the Talmud claim that the oral Torah, or the Talmudic tradition, uh, or the core of it, was also revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. Kabbalists also claim that this knowledge was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai and never written down until, until the late 11, early 1200s. This is the first place that we see evidence of Kabbalah being written down. It starts in southern France with a book called the Sefer HaBahir, the Book of Brightness. We then start to find the first Few Kabbalists emerge in that period, including one who I mentioned at the opening, opening talk, um, Rabbi Isaac the Blind. Interesting that so many Kabbalistic texts talk about brightness and splendor. And the first Kabbalist we ever know of by name in the Provence region uh, is, is blind. Or at least he's referred to as the one who is blind. Kabbalah is filled with sort of ironies like this. And the question of where do these ideas come from? The things we start seeing described in the Sefer Habahir, in Isaac the Blind's writings, and then in the writings of his disciples who move into Spain where there was a lot of opportunities and lots of Jews moving to Spain, in particular the city of Girona. Where this comes from is actually kind of a mystery even to contemporary um, scholarship on the history of Jews. We don't know. And perhaps there's something very fitting about that, that a secret Kabbalistic doctrine has in fact very untraceable historical origins. It's clear that some of it predates the early 1200s, but we're not sure how much and we're not sure where it's from. But from there, it begins to spread. It moves to northern Spain and north central Spain in the region of Castile. And of course, Castile was a very um, dynamic place to be in that period in history because it was after the Reconquista, 
Spain had been reconquered by Christian monarchs and they were trying to set up viable kingdoms again in Castile after they had pushed the Muslim forces south largely just into the area of Granada by around the year 1200. And in this period, Castile was a place where Jews moved from all over Europe. And they set up many different small cities. They were very important there because they were tax farmers, they were money lenders, but they also brought all kinds of trade and all kinds of knowledge. If you're the king of Castile and you want to do business with North Africa, what do you need? You need Jews. Let's say you want to get your um, capital market flowing so that people start to open shops in your cities and then you'll have a tax base. What do you need? Jews, of course. And there are limits on how much you can tax Christians. But there are virtually no limits on how much you can tax Jews. So it's very good sort of business sense for revenues if you're the king to have Jews who make a lot of money lending money but then keep very little of it because it all gets taxed out by the king. Um, so this is a, it, it wasn't always such a good arrangement as it goes through the 13 and 1400s, Jews keep getting expelled all the time. In France there are like nine or ten different expulsions. Um, can you guess why they expel Jews or sort of serial expulsions? Expel them, let them back in, expel them, let them back in. Why would the king do that? Sorry. So he needs the commerce. He brings them back. He takes their money. He cancels out his own debts. The crown sometimes became very indebted to Jewish moneylenders. And so when they expel the Jews, they sort of cash them in, in a sense. They cancel out their own debts and the debts of their subjects. And then the next year, their economy suffers tremendously because it's a stuck economy. There's no... There's, there's no liquidity in that market, and so it's a serious problem. So the history of the finance of Western Europe is actually a history of Jews and their function as well as their oppression. It's a very, very complicated um, circumstance. But in the, the, the region of Castile during the late 1200s, it was a period of tremendous opportunity for Jews. When Jews moved to Castile, the king, especially Alfonso X, he was so glad to have them there that they could live under legal circumstances that were similar to non-Jews. They had rights that were similar to non-Jews. They could own land. They could own property. And many of them started with a 10-year tax exemption status. So it, it was a, a period where Jews actually had real opportunity. And they came from all over. They came from France. They came from Germany. They came from North Africa. Jews saw Castile as an opportunity. And they lived not clustered together in large urban centers. They actually lived spread out in many small cities. Little places like Guadalajara and Medina Celi. These places all had Jewish communities of 50 to 75 families. So 50 to 75 families is enough to have a, a pretty rich Jewish community, but it's in terms of its Jewish life. Um, and most of them were either middle class or they worked for the king. And so they were generally either traders, tax farmers, money lenders, or they actually worked in the royal courts, um, predominantly as diplomats. And the other important thing they did, translators. They translated things to Castilian. And they were relatively protected by the king. And all of these little communities sp scattered across Castile, they did something amazing in that they transformed Judaism by developing Kabbalah in a really, really remarkable way. But yes, his question. Uh, why did they pick the rural areas versus, let's say, the more active uh, metro areas? 
they didn't actually select them. The royal authorities or the, the local nobles would select it for them. They would say, I'll give a, um, a charter for Jews to live a certain number of families in a certain city. They would designate an area that was available for Jewish settlement. It didn't actually work like a ghetto. Jews were sort of scattered throughout the inner part of a city living closely with their Christian neighbors, but it was specified to different places, and it was because it was there to serve uh, economic as well as political purposes. Jews in the Middle Ages also, something very important to realize about them. They dressed like their neighbors, they spoke like their neighbors, and they lived lives very similar to that of their neighbors. Jews in medieval Spain were similar to Jews in contemporary California, right? That walking down the street, they, they, we all sort of are participating in the same culture. We look the same. Jews had non-Jewish friends, they spoke to each other. In fact, the, the king of Spain, King Alfonso the, the X, his number one advisor was actually his doctor, who was a Jew. Being a nice Jewish doctor is an old, uh, an, an, an old profession. Um, when I got my PhD, my mom said, okay, good, now it's, it's sort of like you're a doctor. <laughs> it's the question, am I a real doctor? Um, she, she, she likes it now after. It took like 40 years, but now, now she likes this person. Um, but yes, many Jews worked as doctors, and, they, and the doctors were also the special advisors to the king. And there's evidence that King Alfonso X, when he died, the executor of his will was his Jewish doctor. And his son, who became the king after him, there's one Christmas in, I think it's 1293, where they say that uh, he spent that Christmas in the home of his Jewish advisor. So the, there's a, a way in which Spain was this place where Jews and Christians lived very close together. On the other hand, Spain was a place where Jews were under pressure from the church. So you have the king who protects Jews, works with Jews, but the king also needs the favor of the church, and the church wanted to convert Jews. Now, why did they want to convert Jews? And this is an interesting um, irony of medieval Jewish life. Jews are protected according to Christian law as a legal religion, and Christians may not convert them by force. And this had been since the Justinian Cone in ancient Rome from about the third century. Uh, Judaism is a religio licita. It's a legal religion. Jews can live in Western Europe uh, according to this sort of principle. And since the time of St. Augustine, they developed a theological reason why. And that reason was that Jews are a kind of witness the doctrine is the doctrine of the witness. Jews are a witness to two things. One is that they bear witness to the truth of the Old Testament so that when Christians are looking to convert pagans, people referred to often, for lack of a better term, as pagans, the non-Christian indigenous peoples of Europe, when they convert them to Christianity, they can argue that the stories of the Old Testament are true because Jews still exist. However, Jews exist only by virtue of having rejected the messianic identity of Jesus. And so in this respect, they are a witness in another way. Jews bear witness to what happens to those who reject Christ. And so the argument is, convert to be a Christian like us, you'll be powerful, you'll be part of a large and mighty kingdom, or you'll end up like the Jews. And that by existing as a wandering and oppressed minority, Jews bear witness to the truth of Christianity and to the benefits of conversion. So Jews are useful. They are useful to Christians until around the year 1000 to 1100 when there's hardly any pagans left to convert. And now what? 
And now what? So what purpose do Jews serve? We know what purpose they serve the king, but what purpose do they serve the church? And the challenge becomes, why don't Jews convert? Do they know something that the rest of the world doesn't know? That's a Christian anxiety. And so there's a desire to convert Jews to be successful in persuading them. And in fact, the Franciscan and Dominican orders in the 13th century in particular, during the time when Kabbalah really starts to spread in Western Europe, we find Christian orders, the um, mendicant friars, the monks who would travel throughout Western Europe giving sermons, they were very focused on trying to convert Jews. And they would say, Jews should convert because there's evidence for Jesus in the Old Testament. They even argued there's evidence for Jesus in rabbinic literature. And Christians became very, very good at reading Hebrew. For a long time, Jews could say, you can't argue with me about the Hebrew Bible. We retain the Hebrew text and you guys can't read it. But by the 13th century, there are so many Christian Hebraists, as well as some Jews who have converted to Christianity and are arguing against Judaism, that that's no longer a viable argument. But what is a viable argument is to say, Jews have a secret from Mount Sinai, and Christians and Muslims all agree that Jews were at Mount Sinai, and Christians and Muslims were not. And they claim we have retained this secret. It has been oral. We've only just started to write it down now. And it's a secret we retain and no one else has. This is part of how Kabbalah is actually articulated as a kind of response. It's a polemical response to Christian critiques of Judaism. It's a form of cultural resistance. And when I started thinking about it that way, Christ, Jew, Jewish Kabbalistic doctrine is in many ways a kind of counter theology. It's a way for Jews to imagine a powerful and viable form of themselves that responds to criticisms of Judaism directed at Judaism by Christian missionaries. So now what's the form of self? What is the conception of the world presented in Kabbalah? It's actually a very simple doctrine at its core. It, it's always presented as it's, it's, it's incomprehensible and it's a mystery because it argues that God is an incomprehensible mystery. And that's true for Kabbalists. But they also argue that the divine self called Ein Sof, meaning the endless one, that the Ein Sof emanates these 10 luminosities. They're not physical, but they are these 10 luminous entities called the spherot. Not to be confused with the word sphere, which implies round orbs in the Greek sense. Spherot comes from the Hebrew word, uh, it's from the root sapir, which is where we get the word sapphire, luminosity. But samach peresh, it's luminosities. It also refers to the numerations, le sapir, and also to the narrations, things that narrate out something. So these spirot are the luminous entities emanated from Ainsof, or they're also the enumerations of God's inner experience, and they are the narrations of sort of telling the story of God. And what that story is, is that from Ainsof, the ten spirot emanate down, and from the last spirah, Shekhinah, the world, the physical world is emanated. And that into this physical world is emanated the Jewish soul, the neshama. And that Jews, by embodying their souls, they're actually embodying a little emanated piece of God. That Jews literally embody God in the world. And therefore, when Jews perform mitzvot, when Jews perform the commandments of Judaism, they actually cause the tense we wrote to bind to one another and that the overflow from Ein Sof flows down through them into the world, nourishing the world and sustaining the cosmos. 
It's a heroic image of Judaism. It's a much more powerful image than the Talmudic one, which says Jewish law is a covenantal responsibility that Jews have based on the covenant at Sinai, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's uh, certainly a, the, the, the element that Kabbalists don't deny. But they add an entirely different and in some ways very new layer to this by saying that Jews are the cosmic heroes whose performance of their religious rituals allows the universe to sustain itself. That's a powerful discourse. And it was embraced enthusiastically by Jews. Now, it's radically different from Talmudic Judaism in some ways. It doesn't change the form of what Jews do, right? We all know that Jews can have uh, serious disagreements about where the Torah comes from and, and what's the nature of God, but they can't really have a disagreement about what's the first day of Passover. If that happens, then that's it. We're talking about two different religions, right? That's sectarian. In, in Protestant Christianity, small differences on theological opinions can create whole new religious movements. In Judaism, no one even knows if they have these small differences of theological opinions because they're too busy arguing about how to clean their house for Passover, right? It's very much an action-based religion. And Kabbalah says that those actions are so powerful and so meaningful that the universe could not sustain itself without them. This is a heroic image of Jews. Moreover, the Jewish soul brings God's self down into the world. Jews embody God. They manifest God in their body. No one says this in the Talmud. This is not a Talmudic idea. The first person to really talk about this as an important notion of the nishmat eloha, the divine soul, is Nachmanides, an important Kabbalist and rabbi, perhaps the most important rabbi in Spain. And uh, for people who were at the first talk will recall in the year 1263, he had a public disputation about the truth of Judaism versus Christianity uh, with Pablo Cristiani, this, this Jew who had converted to Christianity, and it was in front of the king of Aragon and the pope. And it seems that he did a little bit too well for his own good in that disputation because after that he was asked to leave the country and not asked in terms of it being an option. So he left and he actually went to the land of Israel where he eventually died. Um, but not without actually discovering some very old Jewish coins and sending an etching of them back to Spain. He, he, the guy never stopped, never stopped thinking. And he, Nachmanides talks about the importance of the divine soul in every Jewish body. Now, if you think about the models of what they're arguing against, what does that sound like? What does it mean when there's this notion of the divine becoming embodied? Christianity is the notion that there's a single individual born of virgin birth who is the only individual who embodies the divine in this world and therefore brings expiation for the sins of mankind. That's called Christology. And that, Jews, including Kabbalists, they adamantly reject it. But they embrace the notion of incarnation. Incarnation is the notion of embodying the divine in this world. Only for Jews, everyone is Jesus in a sense. For Jews, every Jewish person is a manifestation of the divine in the world. It was another kind of forceful assertion of Jewish meaning and Jewish power. They claim all Jews are like gods among men. All Jews are manifesting the divine in this world. 
Now, of course, this is a very ethnocentric doctrine, right? This was the Middle Ages. They weren't really shy about saying that Jews are the true humans who really are divine and everyone else isn't. Um, there's a lot of things about Kabbalistic doctrine that are also very androcentric or male-centered. So I don't want to make apologies for this doctrine. It, it certainly is medieval in its way. But it was a doctrine of resistance that attributes tremendous power to the performance of Judaism. And so, despite the fact that it was really radical. It was also enthusiastically embraced. It was embraced in this very traditional Talmudic Judaism that normally would say, show me a text that you can use as a source for your idea. And of course, there are elements in the rabbinic tradition that are evocative of some parts of Kabbalah. But the doctrine as a whole is clearly a new thing that we don't see in Jewish literature until the late 12th to early 13th centuries. And then suddenly, in around the year 1270 to 1310, in late 13th century Castile, Kabbalah explodes. Thousands of pages of text are written. And this is also where the, the famous book, the Sefer HaZohar, begins to be written and is circulated. And the, the, the Zohar, this is really a remarkable text because it becomes canonized alongside the Talmud and the Bible. And the Zohar, this powerful, powerful text, um, it's a very advanced text. It's kind of complicated. Has anyone tried reading a page of Zohar? It's a little tricky, right? However, have you tried reading a page of Talmud? Tricky, tricky, right? You need a guide, you need to read Rashi. Uh, how do you figure it? It's a laconic, it leaves words out. It's hard to read. Do you know what's much easier to read if you have basic Hebrew skills? Kabbalah, normal, like not the Zohar, but regular Kabbalah. And in my manuscript research for my first book, Kabbalistic Revolution, one of my favorite things to do is go to manuscript libraries around the world, in, in England, in France, in New York, or to go to the, um, the Institute for the Microfilming of Hebrew Manuscripts, the Mechon Letatzlameki Bayad in Jerusalem, where the, the world's manuscripts, most of them have been collected on microfilm in the basement of the library. And I love it because you're down in the basement and it's dark and you get to read manuscripts on microfilm. Um, I think I said at the first talk that when describing this to one of my friends when I came home from a research trip, he suggested that I expand my list of hobbies. Uh, <laughs> but, but manuscripts are wonderful. They're these wonderful things because you get to see what regular people are thinking about and talking about. And we have more than 100,000 Hebrew manuscripts, and those are just the ones that survived. Many were lost in floods. Many were lost in book burnings, right? A lot of Jewish books were intentionally burned. And as the, the famous manuscript codicologist Malachi Beit Ari in Jerusalem pointed out, most manuscripts were lost because of one simple fact. Jews were very literate, and they read their books and wore them out. We wear out our books, and that's what happened to them. We read them. We used them. And in that manuscript collection, lots of Kabbalah, lots of it, and much of it short quick descriptions of the doctrine of the Ten Sfirot, of the notion that Jewish actions influence God and sustain the universe. It's very readable. It's in nice, readable Hebrew. And it's actually much, much easier than reading a page of Talmud. And no one would deny the influence of the Talmud, despite the fact that it's difficult to read. Kabbalah, by comparison, in the Middle Ages was much easier. And much of that work hasn't been published, but that's because of the financial interests of printers in the 17th and 18th and 19th century who chose what texts to print back in Europe. That tells us a lot more about the environment in which printing took place. 
It doesn't tell us a lot about what Jews were really thinking about and talking about in the 13th and 14th and 15th centuries. And there, Kabbalah was a very big part of the picture. And we can see why. It was a form of cultural resistance. It asserted a powerful conception of Judaism. And there's one more form of cultural resistance in this that really matters and that we should think about, which is the notion of sexuality reflected into the divine realm. Now, this is always sort of surprising to us that medievals would do this. But the, the doctrine of Jewish mysticism or the doctrine of Jewish esotericism, secret knowledge, as contained in the, the description of the Sfirot, entails the notion, the idea that the Sfirot are actually gendered, male and female, and that as the light from Ainso flows down through them, it does so through a coupling between these Sfirot that's described as that of erotic love. And that in particular, the central sphirah, the sixth sphirah, Tiferet, is referred to as the divine bridegroom. And the tenth sphirah, the Shekhinah, is referred to as the divine bride. When Jews perform the mitzvot, they bring these two together, especially on the Sabbath. When they engage in transgressions, they drive them apart. It's a love story. It's this passionate love story. But it also does something else. It gives tremendous meaning to the Jewish religious practice of marriage and reproduction. Remember, this is taking place in medieval Spain. What's the ideal of the, of the um, pious man in the Christian context? The priest, the monk, the celibate, right? That monasticism has taken off at this point. All of the friars who are out arguing against the truth of Judaism, they're celibate. And they say Jews are carnal. They are carnal Israel because they are so much a people of the body. Instead of performing Jewish commandments or the commandments of the Bible spiritually, like spiritual circumcision, they do physical circumcision. Rather than observing the Sabbath spiritually, they do it physically. Jews perform these laws with their bodies. And Kabbalah says, indeed, Jews are carnal. They are the carnal manifestation of God and that the spherot reflect humanity. The spherot look, they even say, like a giant anthropos, like a human person. And that the spherot are gendered and sexual such that when Jewish couples, when Jewish husbands and wives um, come together in sexual union, they say this reflects the dynamics of God himself. So not only do they say that sexuality should be permissible, they say sexuality among Jews is the necessary ingredient that brings harmony to the Godhead and brings God's light into the world, and that without it, the universe would blink out. And that Christians, by embracing celibacy, are not just doing something unnecessary. Kabbalists in the Middle Ages argue that celibacy is counterproductive to the functioning of the universe. Not just counterproductive, like it's counterproductive in that way too, but it's counter the, the universe and God need this, they argue, and that without it, without it, the universe cannot persist. In the Kabbalistic vision, they are like cosmic stewards or heroes. But it's also a deeply Jewish doctrine because this heroism is a Jewish heroism. The actions that are necessary to continue the universe are Jewish actions. And this conception of Judaism seems to be an important part of why Jews didn't begin to convert to Christianity in large numbers until after more than another century 
of Christian persecution. And then in the late 13 and early 1400s, we start to see many, many more Jews convert. And there, I don't think it's because they found Christian doctrines compelling. I think it's because Christian techniques for converting Jews became much more ruthless. And it was an example not of Jews losing faith. It was an example, I think, of Jews wishing to stay alive. And this becomes important all the way through the expulsion. But this conception of Judaism, the Kabbalistic notion of Judaism, um, this is the sort of paradigm shift that happens in rabbinic Jewish life from around the late 13th, early 14th century. It spreads throughout the Jewish world and becomes this dominant feature of Jewish discourse. Now, let's compare this to the modern example, or to actually our contemporary example. Um, in our sort of modern, really postmodern environment, um, religion takes on a sort of different tone. We are living in a period where the combination of identities is considered very powerful and, and very meaningful to many people. We often refer to this as hybridity, which is combining elements of different cultures, different religions. I mean, people practice yoga um, or will occasionally eat Ayurvedic foods that are healthy for them. These are elements of other religions that are extracted from them and repackaged and, and recombined in new ways. We live in a period where the individual, the experiences of the individual, the uh, feelings of the individual are very, very important. As I was describing pre-modern Kabbalah, did I use the word happiness, fulfillment, spirituality? Do you know how much I know about the daily life of my Kabbalists? Like nothing, it's so frustrating, I wanna know, do they, I mean, how many kids did they have? What did they do for a living? We can surmise, but they never say. Most of them don't even think it's interesting enough to tell us their names. They wrote anonymously, and not because they were hiding from something, but because they just didn't think it was important who they were. The ideas they were recording was what was important. Who they were was not very interesting to them. Where they lived, what they did for a living, what they like and don't like, never comes up. Their fears, their hopes, their aspirations, their anxieties, never in there. And the idea that Kabbalah is valuable as a form of cultivating happiness, fulfillment, spirituality, they don't use these words. They're not interested in them. Their focus was on the corporate identity of the Jewish people and the meaning of Jewish religious practice in general. And what we find as we move into the modern period is an increasing attention throughout Western culture, and this seeps into Judaism as well, of the, the experiences of the individual. We become much more interested in ourselves as individuals rather than in ourselves as members of a corporate communal identity. And that focus on the individual means we become much more interested in our happiness, in our sense of fulfillment, that we become much more interested in narratives about people's lives, experiences. We become much more likely to value opinions of individuals and to respect the diversity of opinions of individuals as we move into the modern and then the postmodern period. This is also sometimes referred to as a new age. Um, I mean, think of, I don't know, the 
musical Hair often comes to mind, where uh, the idea of the dawning of the age of Aquarius was one where the boundaries that held people apart, sometimes even fostering hostilities, that these break apart in a new age where the boundaries of, of, of restrictions around gender, restrictions around religion, restrictions around race and class, that these boundaries fall away so that every individual can achieve their own spiritual enlightenment and fulfillment in a just and equitable society. And that the freedom to choose the identity that one wishes to assume, this is valued in modern and postmodern environments. And there's, of course, many things that are good about this. I don't want to sort of judge the pre-modern versus the, the post-modern. I want to just sort of, I want to notice their differences. Pre-modern was about communal identity. Postmodern is about individual identities and experiences and feelings. And the freedoms that accrue to individuals, especially our freedom to choose. And of course, how do we choose what we want in a postmodern and late capitalist society? How do you get the things that you want? If you decide you want something and you wish to acquire it, you buy it, right? That through buying things, that there's a marketplace. And it's been noted that religion also functions in a kind of spiritual marketplace in the postmodern world. And this spiritual marketplace provides access to all kinds of things. If you wanted to learn a lot about Buddhism, what would you probably do? What would a person in the contemporary world probably do? Will they move to uh, India or China learn a whole other language and disciple themselves for 20 years? No. It's very disruptive, because like, if you have to be at work on Monday morning, I think that's going to be a problem. <laughs> they might buy a book, okay, buying something. Go on, the Go on the internet, where they'll probably end up buying tutorials. They may attend seminars for which they pay. Um, they may then acquire some swag, right? They'll get some shirts and maybe some jewelry um, that will buy things. And through, through commerce and the commodification of all kinds of religious elements, these things are readily acceptable to us, right? And we start to develop hybrid identities. There's, there's Jew booze, right? <laughs> Jewish Buddhists. There's all, kinds, there's all kinds of combinations of things or people who don't regard themselves as a member of a religion at all. Instead, they are a person who is just spiritual, and they pursue many different kinds of spiritual practices, extracting the parts of it from them that are useful. And that word utility really matters. We are looking for something that is a tool or a means to an end, like having an app on your phone. And the utility is, does it make me feel more fulfilled? Does it give me more fulfillment? Does it enable me to have a better life, a happier life? As an individual, not necessarily even as a Jewish person or as an American, although I'm actually Canadian. Um, but as, as a, it's, I, you know, I always love pointing out that I'm Canadian because there's something inherently funny about being Canadian. I'm not sure what it is, but it is, it is funny. It makes me laugh too. Um, so there's something inherently useful about acquiring fulfillment and religions are seen as these things now that work on a marketplace where their different elements can be chosen by different individuals who perceive those pieces as helping them achieve fulfillment. And it's within that context that we find the development of the Kabbalah Center. Now, they'll often pronounce it Kabbalah. And while I said that I, I use the more Israeli slash um, Sephardi Kabbalah with the emphasis on the third syllable, um, Ashkenazi Jews did refer to it as Kabbalah. Um, and Kabbalah, Kabbalah, the, this Ashkenazi pronunciation is what we often find um, also with uh, the Kabbalah Center. 
Now, the Kabbalah Center actually doesn't develop until uh, the, the mid to late 20th century, but it's not the first movement to adopt Kabbalah. In the Renaissance, there were Christians writing Christian Kabbalah. We actually find in the late 13th and early 14th centuries, Raymond Lull using Kabbalistic techniques for trying to convert Jews to Christianity. And throughout the Renaissance, there were Kabbalists like, well, Pico della Mirandola actually hired a Kabbalist um, and translated many Kabbalistic works from Hebrew into Latin. Um, and, and there have been a lot of ways that Kabbalah has been useful to Christians, especially Christians looking to usurp established church doctrine. They can claim, well, Jews have retained a secret from Mount Sinai that maybe they don't, they don't understand quite correctly. They'd say Jews don't realize that this doctrine of the Sfirot really embraces the notion of the Trinity. So they would, they would argue that there's some Christian ideas encoded into Kabbalah, but they found Kabbalistic ideas useful because it's a claim to secret knowledge from Mount Sinai. And in Western religious traditions generally, to claim to have secret knowledge from Mount Sinai is to claim to have God's knowledge itself in a way that can, in, in some ways, resist the doctrine that has been established by public churches, by public religious forms. So Kabbalah has been useful to a lot of different people. But in the 20th century, we find the development of the, uh, the Kabbalah Center. Now, its origins are actually with Yehuda Ashlag, not that he developed the Kabbalah Center, but he was a, an important um, scholar and thinker for the development of the Kabbalah Center. Ashlag was born in Warsaw and moved to Jerusalem. He was born in around 1885, and he moved to Jerusalem in the early 1900s and became the author of the famous translation of the Zohar. The Zohar is written in Aramaic, and the Zohar is written as though it's the words of the second century sage Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai um, when he was hiding in a cave during the Bar Kokhba revolt. Um, and that uh, the, it's written in Aramaic because this was the vernacular language at the time. And Jews who read the Talmud are used to Aramaic. Um, but people who are not used to that language but might be good at Hebrew find this difficult to read. And in the context of um, the early Zionist project where many people were now only know, were, were knowledgeable in Hebrew but not in Aramaic, um, Ashlag translated the entire Zohar, which is about 1,700 pages long, into Aramaic, I mean, I'm sorry, into Hebrew. Um, so this, this translation referred to as the Ma'alot HaSulam, which is sort of like the gradations of the latter, is what he named it, is a translation and commentary on the Zohar. And he had a, a main student who was also his son-in-law, Rabbi Yehuda Svi Brandwine. And Brandwine in Jerusalem became the teacher of, or at least had worked together with, a man named Shraga Feivel Gruberger, who was born in Brooklyn and went to Jerusalem to study with Brandwine. Brandwine. But Shraga Feivel Gruberger um, changed his name when he came back to the U.S. to work originally in insurance to Philip Berg. And Philip Berg is the, the founder of the Kabbalah Center. Um, the center that he first set up in Tel Aviv didn't go so well, but he then set up a center in the early 1980s in Los Angeles, and this really began to take off. And in the, the generation since, now his two sons are really the primary spokesmen for the organization. More than 40 centers globally, they distribute um, enormous amounts of books, lectures, seminars, as well as uh, material objects such as Kabbalah string bracelets and Kabbalah water, all kinds of things that are disseminated by the Kabbalah Center. According to uh, the, the doctrine of the Kabbalah Center, Kabbalah is a form of wisdom orig originally re revealed on Mount Sinai 
but it was sort of ahead of its time, they say, and was, had to be kept relatively secret and was studied primarily by Jews. And it was waiting for a moment when it could be shared with the rest of the world, when the world entered a new age. And they, they adopt new age terminology that after sort of the dawning of the age of Aquarius, that this is a period when humanity had finally developed to the point that they could accept Kabbalistic ideas but that, that meant it was time to share Kabbalah with humanity. And so therefore, Philip and his wife, Karen Berg, were the ones who had the honor of sharing Kabbalah with the world. But they argue that Kabbalah is not a specifically Jewish doctrine. It is not contingent upon a person being Jewish and practicing the mitzvot. Rather, they say Kabbalah is a kind of technology of the soul that allows a person to utilize certain techniques that are learned from Kabbalah in order to achieve fulfillment. And that studying Kabbalah, and you can't get too many clicks into their website without having to pay for something, by so paying for, but again, this is a postmodern phenomenon. We always pay for things. And remarkably, people don't find that that cheapens it. They're used to it. People expect, if this is a valuable doctrine that is going to provide endless fulfillment, of course they're going to pay for it. You, you actually would have a hard time or harder time doing that in the 13th century. But in the 21st century, hardly anyone bats an eye. And so this dissemination of Kabbalah is um, part of what they see as the fulfillment of a development of humanity. But now Kabbalah is a universal doctrine available to everyone. When it's described on their website, Why Study Kabbalah, um, it's described as follows. Uh, Berg says, Kabbalah is an ancient yet entirely new paradigm for living. It teaches that all of the branches of our lives, health, relationships, business, emanate from the same trunk and same root. It's the technology of how the universe works at the core level. It's a whole new way of looking at the world that, you can connect, that can connect you to the kind of permanent fulfillment you may be seeking. The bottom line in Kabbalah is the proof is in the pudding. The knowledgekabbalah.com imparts the information we provide for you and the tools we share must have practical results in your life, results you can feel. One of the nice things about studying Kabbalah is that it doesn't require you to leave your current faith or religious path. Kabbalah will merely deepen your understanding of the universe and give you more information and tools to understand why things are happening to you and how you can better connect to the light of the creator and receive the fulfillment you're looking for. Kabbalah teaches universal principles that apply to all peoples of all faiths and all religions, regardless of ethnicity or where you came from. The beauty of studying Kabbalah is that you can't be forced to think in a particular way, all we can do is simply share information with you and hope that you will apply it in your life for the sake of bettering it. That's the purpose of everything you will discover on Kabbalah.com. So that passage, what, are, what do you notice about it? What do you, he what do you hear? Yes? It sounds a lot to me like Scientology. Well, Scientology also is very focused on um, the balance of, of human emotion and fulfillment um, as part of, you know, the desire of going clear um, and being then prepared for a, a return to the extraterrestrial origins of life when they come back. Um, so minus that kind of alien eschatology, um, there, is, there is this emphasis on personal 
inner experiences and emotional states. Yes? Uh, it, so you're saying it sounds like promotion. And in the postmodern world, we share information with each other through economic promotion, right? Postmodern society is one big commercial, right? The, and therefore, Kabbalah.com or the Kabbalah Center sounds like that, right? It sounds like the logic of the culture in which it's being articulated, just like medieval Kabbalah sounded like and responded to the cultural moment in which it took shape, right? So they are both reflections of a cultural moment, right? If we want to understand Jewish experience, therefore, in the pre-modern world, Kabbalah is incredibly important, and it's really been ignored in the scholarship. I think it's a necessary source of data about Jewish experience. However, when you, when you look at these different cultural moments, you can see how different those cultures are because they're using words here like fulfillment. They also use words like tools, right? These are tools for attaining a personal inner sense of happiness, of a better life, financial, relation, financial um, success, personal relationships. All of these things are enhanced, according to the Kabbalah Center, through the teachings of the Kabbalah. And of course, it's universalized, or what we would call in the study of religion, it's decontextualized. And decontextualization is the extraction of elements from different cultures and bringing them together for personal fulfillment. That process is clearly at play here. This is a very perfectly articulated example of postmodern religion because Kabbalah in this case is a technology available to everyone of any religion, of no religion, of any ethnicity. It's there to help you have a better life if you want it. Yes. Yeah, you could put in yoga, you could put in um, any number of different kinds of religious forms are utilized in this way. And that's how religion is sort of functions in the, in the, the postmodern contemporary environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and, it's, and the reason why you're primed for that is that we know now that that, that is literally how we interact with human beings, right? A synagogue like this is an unusual space, and the, what's unusual about it is that there's no cashier. I mean, synagogues do require philanthropic support, but you, you're not buying a commodity. It's not a movie theater. It's not a shopping mall. American society is a place where humans interact, humans share information, um, through commerce. Most of our public spaces are commercial spaces. Most of the way that we even see other humans outside of our home is because we go somewhere to spend money. And in those environments, we are constantly assaulted with appeals to us, right? Appeals to spend money. And there's something very convenient about that, right? Like, you know, it's like, oh, great, there's a new iPhone. I can go buy that. Um, but it, it's not just about our commodities. Sorry, I, I am also, an, I, I understand there's a, an Apple techie sort of thing here. Um, the, I'm a member of the cult. 
Sorry, I, yes, I can't go anywhere without my MacBook Air. Um, so we are, I, I'm also certainly a part of that. Like, I, I love going into the Apple store. I can't pass one if tractor beam pulls me in, and that's great. But that, that phenomenon that does so many useful things in our life, right, and technology does incredibly useful things for us. I, in our, I, the only reason I'm even here today is because I have my phone to get me here. I can't can't navigate at all. And technology actually does things like it, it fixes our illnesses. Do you, do you know what was the first year? I believe it was 1908, was the first year that we developed a medicine. I think it, was, I think it was a sulfa drug where you could give someone a medicine and they got better. Not just that it alleviated a symptom, but where we actually started to find medical technologies that cure people's diseases. We had surgeons before that, and some of them were amazing and some of them not so amazing. But for the most part, before 1900, what were hospitals for? for poor people to die. Everybody else died at home and the doctor came to them. Hospitals where they was hospitality. This is a place where people without means would go to die so that it wouldn't happen like on the street. Um, in the 100 years between then and now, medicine has just improved enormously. It's very effective. We live in a period where we have good reason for thinking that our technologies are efficient. And this notion of tools and technologies, they call it a technology of the soul in Kabbalah, it's because this is something that does do good things for us. And the notion of commerce is a way of sharing ideas. Commerce does do good and efficient things for us. It does provide us things that make our lives more fulfilled or happier or at least more effective. But it's not just in those practical realms that this has an impact. It affects the entire construction of religious identities and the sharing of religious discourses that also happens through the means of commerce. And within that cultural logic, the Kabbalah Center is a, a very prime example of our contemporary moment. Yes? In the Kabbalah Center or pre-modern? Well, I wouldn't say generally the, the contemporary Kabbalah understands it very much, at least in terms of it's effective. It's a useful tool for achieving personal fulfillment. Their claim is that Kabbalistic technologies, as they articulate them, that those are what works and other things don't work. Medieval Kabbalists don't even really talk in those terms because they're living in a different cultural moment. Yes. There, there was the idea that their inner circle, there were some claims about too much power there. There's also the claim of whether or not they qualify as a religion in 501c3. I don't want to get into any of that. I really don't know. Um, and if this is being recorded, I am not criticizing the Kabbalah Center on those terms. <laughs> and in fact, I would go so far as to say the Kabbalah Center, we, we should really just suspend our judgment of it if we wish to understand it. It's not hurting traditional Judaism. It's not hurting us. The, um, I mean, here I'm speaking not just as a scholar of Jewish studies, but also as a Jewish scholar of Jewish studies. I'll out myself as Jewish in this context. And I, I think that it's, it's, not, it's not damaging traditional Jewish society. I think people who are involved with the Kabbalah Center are happy to do so. They perceive themselves as getting something out of it. 
Um, they think it's worth the money. They think it's worth their time. They think it's making them happier. Um, that's fine. And I think that if people are finding that in that context, they're looking for something different than what they could get in, in a synagogue or what they could get elsewhere. Um, it's, it's a different sort of product that's being offered. And it's sort of like how if someone buys, I don't know, if someone buys a car, it doesn't necessarily mean a loss of motorcycle purchasing because motorcycle customers and car customers are off, really, it's not the same thing. There are people who are buying motorcycles and that's not replaced by people who are buying cars. Um, I think it's, it's something like that. They're looking for something different and, and they, feel like they're, they feel like they're getting it there. Um, so I, and I also think the Kabbalah Center fosters no hostility to traditional Judaism. I don't, I don't think that it's looking to damage traditional Judaism. Um, I don't think that it's looking to, I don't know, target college students and deceive them, right? Like that was the fear with some cults in the, in the 1970s. I don't think it's doing any of those things. I think it's looking to target young professionals and appeal to them. And if it does, then that's, that's the culture in which we live. But I, I, I think it's, it's really kind of neither harmful nor, nor helpful in that respect. Yes? Uh, two very brief comments and then a, a serious question on how it got started. Uh, the brief comments are, number one, seek and you shall find. And apparently there's enough out there that if you are looking, you'll be able to pick up enough things that you know, make sense, make you feel better. And then part of my other comment about making you feel better you are, you're good, you're great. You know, everything a Jewish mother tells you is correct. You know, so, so it's real easy to see it and enjoy it and think you're better because of it. And perhaps you are, I'm not going to try to pass judgment. My question is, going back to the you know, uh, 13th century when things were getting started, was the average Jew, uh, the Jewish family able to be involved? Or was it just really a very select number that were more well-to-do and have time to be scholars and think and debate. Um, and then, you know, kind of like what was the atmosphere there that things could get going? Obviously, there was no big stress going on at that point in time, except for maybe the plague was getting started. Well, plague's not quite yet, but they are, the stress is that Christian missionaries are constantly critiquing Judaism, saying Judaism is outmoded. Jew, Jew, they would say Jews have no political power. There are small people living as subjugated minorities within Christian and Muslim kingdoms. Obviously, your God has abandoned you. This was the critique directed against Judaism. It's called the argument from history. Or Augustine would say, you guys merely bear witness to what happens to people who reject Jesus. And so Kabbalah is a complete inversion of that scenario. It says, in fact, it would only appear that Jews are weak, but they are the strongest. It would appear that Jews are abandoned by God. Jews manifest God. It would appear that Judaism has no effect on the world, but in fact, Jews are the thing that allows the universe to subsist, and Christian and Muslim power is the only thing that allows, that is, is, is they're, they're, the only thing that they're actually enjoying is temporal power in this world, not power in the world to come. So their, their, claim, their claim is one that rejects and sort of reverses Christian claims made against them. Now, you ask a very good question. How broadly shared was this idea? How, how much was this shared with the broader community? We do know from the early 14th century, Joshua Ibn Shawib and others, um, he's a primary example, were, they were describing some Kabbalistic ideas in their sermons. 
Um, what does it mean to be an average Jew in the Middle Ages? Quite a few Jewish men in particular were literate. And I think if they were literate, if they could read and write Hebrew, they could read most of the, many of the um, shorter anonymous Kabbalistic texts that I've seen. They're much, much more accessible, as I noted, than something like a page of Talmud. Um, so I, I think that this was something that had a broader social appeal. And if only they would write blogs to tell us about all of their individual experiences and Facebook every time they had a conversation with someone about Kabbalistic ideas, I would have a final sort of conclusive answer about just how widely felt the Kabbalistic ideas were. We don't have that kind of evidence, and I, I wish we did. But the preponderance of evidence would suggest that Kabbalistic ideas were a significant part of how people thought about Judaism um, spreading from Spain throughout the rest of the Jewish world from the late 13th century onward. How fast and how deep it spread is an interesting question, but it was clearly a significant piece of the story of how Jews constructed a viable sense of Jewish identity in a world in which they were being bombarded with arguments that Judaism was passé. Yes, sir. Yes, the Kabbalists were not at all shy about that. They claimed forcefully that Jews are the special chosen people, that they are uniquely the ones who have access to divine knowledge from Mount Sinai, and no one else does. And in a context where their sort of competing interlocutors are Christians and Muslims, Christian and Muslims also think that Jews were privy to a special revelation on Mount Sinai. So this was effective for them. And they were, I mean, the Middle Ages was a, a period where people were unabashedly self-promoting or ethnocentric. And so Jews claimed that they are the special chosen people, that they literally are the divine people. Um, that, that was really in keeping with the kinds of approaches to the sort of unique chosen status of a particular religion in the Middle Ages more generally. Christians and Muslims made similarly unabashed um, assertions about their own unique specialness and superiority. Yes, ma'am. Back to the modern times, um, what is the significance of the string bracelet? Oh, well, the, it's described in a number of ways, but the idea is that it's, uh, it, it has, it's, it's been infused with, um, in some cases they call it like, it's been, like the Kabbalah water, infused with powerful meditations. Um, that has been taken to Rachel's tomb in some cases, that this brings about um, connectedness to the, to the light of the creator, is how they would put it. And that the more you learn how to receive the light of the creator, um, the more able one will be to achieve fulfillment in their life. So the, the, and all of these objects are designed to have that function. That sounds like yoga. Uh, we use yoga that way, but there it's about healthiness. And, and um, I, Kabbalah also claims that this will promote healthful living, and spiritually helpful fulfillment. Yes? Did uh, Kabbalists, and we're probably talking about medieval, although I think some subscribe to the same notions today, believe that uh, Jews had a different type of soul than non-Jews? If so, how was that different? Uh, did non-Jews have no soul at all? Uh, and how did that deal with the issue of 
converts. And lastly, the Kabbalists believe that uh, non-Jews had a place in the world to come. Okay, so you find lots of different opinions about these things. For the most part, they believed that Jews had a special divine soul or neshama and non-Jews did not. Some will say that non-Jews were literally um, not human in the same way. What of conversion? In some cases, they claim that converts are actually people who already had a Jewish soul and only someone who already had a Jewish soul would want to return to be part of a member of Israel. So they become um, sort of returning, like returning lost elements of the divine self that's necessary in order to bring about redemption. So they see conversion as this sort of mystical process. Others say that conversion initiates a change in the very being of that person. Um, but they, they were, there's no question that pre-modern Jewish mystical texts have a kind of spiritual racism to them, and I think we should be completely open and honest about um, that. It's problematic, and you know we shouldn't gloss over that or apologize for it. Um, and it was uh, reflective of the kinds of assertions people made broadly in the pre-modern world about being members of a particular religion and therefore being more human or more fully human as a result of that. Um, so Kabbalists certainly did they did make those assertions. Um, what was the second part of your question? Ah, so when it comes to the world to come, the um, Kabbalists do talk about the notion of a world to come as a place where one goes when one dies, uh, or, or also the world to come as a kind of element of the divine that's always there, that the Alma Da'ati, as it's referred to in Aramaic, um, sometimes gets translated as the world that is coming. It's this world that's always there, always in, a, in arrival, or always serving as a source of emanation into this world. And that rather than break it down into time, where we have this time and then the next time, they saw redemption as something that was kind of like a, um, a radio station that's emanating something and that people tune into it in order to gain access to it. Their notions of the world to come and of messianic redemption are, are actually very interesting. It sort of goes beyond the, the confines of this talk. Um, the, the flow of time doesn't work as linearly for the Kabbalists. And so these things that are in the future are actually accessible on, on a certain level. Um, I would point out, though, that the um, communities that embrace Kabbalah in the Middle Ages, as opposed to what we see in the modern period, there are some continuities between non-Kabbalah centers, versions of Kabbalah. You have Hasidic communities who still study Kabbalah and they're very interested in it. You have lots of Jewish communities in Jewish renewal, but throughout the, the Jewish movements who study Kabbalah and find it very meaningful. Um, in many ways, I think within Jewish communities, the study of Kabbalah is a kind of resistance to the atomized, um, alienating structures of postmodernity, where people can become kind of lost as separated individuals just floating in space. That a synagogue like this, right, we're all gathered together talking about something having to do with Judaism. It's a resistance to the trends of postmodernity in some ways. And Kabbalah has been a meaningful element for that as well. And so in many respects, Kabbalah has been and, and continues to be a form of Jewish cultural resistance, just in, in uh, sometimes ironic and unexpected ways. So it sounds like Kabbalah is the salt that makes everything better. <laughs> it, it's a, it is a kind of Jewish seasoning um, of sorts, and, and sometimes, you're seasoning, uh, sometimes you're seasoning meat, and sometimes you're seasoning 
Something else. Uh, it, de it depends on the culture and the moment. I like that image. Yes? You talked uh, earlier about a Kabbalist view of sexuality. Uh, how are Kabbalists about the concept of Yetzer Hara? Um, normative Judaism looks upon sexuality, Yetzer Hara, in a very circumspect fashion with, yes, it's necessary, but there's lots of problems. How does Kabbalism look at this? Sexuality is incredibly powerful for Kabbalists, and that when done correctly, it's the thing that helps unite the divine and bind the Svirot together. It causes the Shekhinah, the bride, with, with the, the Tiferet, the Holy One, blessed be he, or the bridegroom to unite together and in erotic embrace. So when directed correctly, it, it, it really establishes the world and unites God within himself in sexual embrace that happens within the divine. When done incorrectly, it destroys the world. So it's powerful, sort of like fire is powerful, and it can drive your car or burn your house down. So this is a similar phenomenon. It's powerful, and it's a power that can be directed in certain ways. But what's important about the Kabbalists is that they're following the Talmud, which also says that when man and wife are together, this is how humans really reflect the divine form. To be created in the divine image is really seen most clearly when man and woman are coupled together. For the Kabbalists as well, when man and wife are coupled together, this really is what it means to, for their bodies to reflect the divine image. Um, that's a, a sort of powerful counter-articulation to the Christian value of, of celibacy as the highest level of spirituality. Kabbalists actually turn that inside out and say, no, that's in fact a, a, a destruction of the divine plan and of the divine form. So sex is, is certainly very, very important for Kabbalists, but it's powerful. And when done incorrectly, sexual transgression is a very, very, very serious problem uh, for Kabbalists. Yeah, they talk about the Yetzer Hara, but I believe largely the way the, that we see it in Talmudic discourse, um, where the Yetzer Hara has this potential to be harnessed for good or harnessed for ill, it's all a question of its placement, where it is in the, uh, what role it's playing and, and to what end it's being directed. Um, there's even a description um, of a medieval Kabbalist who talks about the, the snake, the primordial snake in the Garden of Eden. Um, and that that snake actually served a purpose of connecting the upper and lower realms. And when it was in its proper location, it was actually a very good thing. And that the, the emergence of evil is about things being outside of their assigned domain. And that's what leads to evil. It's a, a result of disharmony or an imbalance in the divine economy where things aren't where they're supposed to be. And how things get out of whack is when humans do the wrong thing. Human actions for the Kabbalists are so powerful that they not just reflect the divine realm, they impact the divine realm. And they can really cause serious cosmic disharmony and divine disharmony. I guess, is there, is there a lie? There was one last question, and then we should probably all go eat some cake. Yes. I didn't, and you are correct to point that out. So practical Kabbalah has a couple of different forms. In most of its modern, uh, in pre-modern forms, it, it was a, a kind of uh, techniques for letter permutation, other kinds of meditations on letters, and I think for some Kabbalists this was important. I, well, I know that for some, some Kabbalists this was very important. I'm not entirely sure how much this was part of the everyday discourse of Jews thinking about being Jews. 
it's certainly there, but it's not until really in the early modern period where what's often called Kabbalah Ma'asit, which is really a kind of combination of Kabbalistic letter and numerology um, mysticism or meditative techniques gets combined with good old-fashioned Jewish magic, which has been part of the Jewish tradition since Talmudic times, and that the fusing of those two becomes a marker of the power of the Kabbalist. We see that in particular in Hasidic communities, um, where this becomes a marker of the power of the, of the Rebbe or the, the Hasidic master, because they have mastered Kabbalistic slash magical um, manipulations. Um, it's true that that's an element and that's there and that wasn't part of the story I'm telling today. Um, not necessarily because it's not there, but I, I don't think that it's the, um, it's, it's the dominant discursive structure that, that, Kabbalist, well, that Jews were, were making recourse to for the most part. Um, I guess I can... One more question. Susan. Sure, who, who did I miss? I oh, sure. <laughs> it does, although I don't know if they associated this with how we um, arrange our furniture. Uh, 